My good people, what's happening with you? Hey, we're back again with episode two. And you know the professor go hard, baby. I'm hoping everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's feeling good. You know, we're really rocking this week. We got a lot on the table to talk about. You know, one of the things that has been bothering me a lot, man, is what's going on with the hospitals and their visitation policies. You know, when I look back at the beginning of the virus and the pandemic, I think about all the people that we lost. We lost over 600,000 people in America. And most of them we lost were alone, by themselves. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going to the hospital as a patient for something that you have nothing to do with and then be told that your family members can't come to visit you, that you have to rely on the nursing staff and the hospital staff to help you. Most of that staff is overworked. So it's not like they're going to have the time to help you. Most of those nurses in those hospitals should only be seeing maybe four patients a nurse, even in ICU. Maybe four. That's a lot. But during that pandemic, they were seeing seven and eight patients each. So what kind of time do they have to spend with you to talk to you about communicating with your family. They really don't have the time. I mean, think about it. Here you have a nurse who's worked 18 hours a day, most likely, has her own family to worry about, worrying about whether or not she's going to become infected with the virus, has to run around from room to room, from ICU bed to ICU bed, with an iPad or a telephone, trying to get a conference call so you could talk to your family. And that's if you can communicate. Can you imagine how many people were in transition? I mean, they were dying and unable to say goodbye to their families face to face. I saw a family on television who had a video of their father dying, and they wanted people to see this. Their father was on video from a FaceTime video saying goodbye to his family. He only had a few seconds to say it. And i never forget what he said because it hit me in my chest. He said, I'm going now. Make sure to take care of your mother. Make sure to take care of your mother. I love y'all. And that was it. Now, it's not like his family was in another country or hundreds of miles away and couldn't make it. His family was downstairs. His family was in the car in the parking lot. Do you know the grieving that that family had to go through knowing they couldn't be there with their father? Do you know what it is for a father not to be able to talk to his kids, leave the last message with his family during transition? When I die, and if I can die at home, I want my family around me so I can give the last messages to my family and my kids to let them know that they need to continue on. Not talking through a damn iPad. I want to be able to hold them, caress them. This is our last time. I'm getting ready to go to see God. 
I'm going home. Before I leave, I want to leave a message of hope. But you know what? We were denied that opportunity. We were denied that opportunity by people who don't live in our community, who made these policies based on what they thought was best for us. Didn't even have a discussion, didn't have a community outreach to be able to say, hey, we want to talk to the community and set this up and see how we can work this so you have the safety of the community, you can have the, the uh, respect of those who are dying in the community, and we can grieve together. These policies were set up by people who know nothing about you. I keep telling you that these people don't give a damn about you because if they cared about you, they would have an outreach in your community right now knowing that you are grieving, knowing that you're dealing with depression because of these issues, knowing that you're dealing with anxiety. They have no outreach for you. You show me one hospital in the black community where they've sent out outreach into the community because they know that we've lost so many people and that we are grieving and dealing with this problem. Show it to me. Show me a comprehensive plan to handle this. You don't give a damn about us because if you cared about us, you would have had it as a standard of care on how we could have been with our people, how we could communicate with our people, how we could bring our religious leaders in there to talk to our people, how we can transition with respect and dignity. You don't give a shit about my people. And I know that. And you know that. If you really want to define this, I look at this as the second pandemic in our community. It's the mental health pandemic. We are dealing with so many mental health disorders that need to be addressed now. This is an emergency. We need people to come in now and start working in these communities. We're not only dealing with anxiety disorders, we're dealing with panic disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, depression, bipolar, mood disorders, post-traumatic stress disorders, psychotic disorders, schizophrenia. How long does the United States healthcare system think we can survive like this? How long does the country think that the black and brown community can handle this without economic help, without the educational help that we need in medicine, without mental health experts in our community? How long do you think we can survive? At the end of the day, it's going to affect this whole country. Our problems are going to come out and bite you in your ass. Then you're going to say, we should have interceded. We need the mental health community to step up now. We need doctors without borders to get into these communities now. We need to set up emergency mental health divisions now. I don't give a damn if it's a tent, a mobile home, a car. We need you to come into these communities right now and work with the grassroots to be able to handle these situations. If we don't, America is going to pay later on. I guarantee you. When I do these podcasts, I try to educate our people. I try to touch those who don't have the experience of living in these communities to really feel and understand the pain, the anguish that these communities are going through. I want them to know that there's racism, 
that's involved in the social economic process of these communities. You know, I've lived in the black community all my life, and I felt the pain. And when I bring a guest on, those guests also come from these communities. So they have strategies that they can give us to try to help us understand how to make it better. They can teach us how to cope with this disaster. Well, today I have a special guest. Dr. Mayo is a keynote speaker, an author, a licensed marriage and family therapist, a psychologist, an entrepreneur. I mean, she's a black woman who is really making a difference in her community. And I'm sure we're all going to learn a lot from this conversation. Without further ado, Dr. Mayo. What's happening, my good people? As you know, we always bring the heat. We don't play around. We bring people that have knowledge, people understand the community. And today we're with Samia, Dr. Samia Mayo. And it's important that uh, we have this uh, conversation with the sister. And, uh, you know, when my producer came to me and asked me to take a look at this sister to bring her on to the uh, podcast, and I saw her resume, I was definitely impressed, not only because she educationally qualified to talk to us, but because she's so eclectic. And a lot of times that's what we lose. We got people coming straight out of medical school or coming out of college, going into postgraduate school or medical school and never have no experience in life. And they're going to get on and try to tell us how to get our lives together. And they're still living with their mother and fathers and they're directing their lives. So we do. We definitely have to speak to people with some experience. Welcome, my sister. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Blessed. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm just so happy that uh, we had this chance to talk, uh, you know, because once Bless gave me the information, you know, I w- I'm definitely impressed with you and, and what you're doing. Can you give the people a little uh, idea of your background? So my background is I am a psychotherapist. I am a CEO. I own my own mental health facility. I am a speaker and an author of Mother and Wife, and I am someone that gets out in the community that tries to basically impress on the people to educate them about mental health, which I have a mental health girls program that I'm actually trying to get in the schools right now. So that's just a little bit about me and my background. That's wonderful. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of people I like to speak with, people who got experience in doing other things and very eclectic. You know, uh, Doc, this is the deal. Before we go into what uh, 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 health problems are mental health problems are. Let's talk about good mental health. And I'm going to run through okay. a few things, and then you give me your uh, opinion about that. Now, to okay. me, to me, and this can be, you know, there's a very to me, good mental health is subjective. Am I right about that? Elaborate. Okay. For instance, if I have the ability to to feel, express, and manage a range of positive and negative emotions, the ability to form and maintain relationship with others. The ability to cope and manage and change, you know, when things are uncertain, is that good mental health? Yes. Excellent. That's what I'm talking about. And so when I am dealing with and coping with these situations, I could probably say that my mental health is stable. Yes, because this is the thing. When a person comes to therapy, right? Some people may not have major breakthroughs, but as long as they're managing, as long as they're getting up every day and out of the bed and they're not trying to commit suicide, 
then that is also good mental health because everyone is not going to have results. And mental health, to be honest, therapy is you get out what you put in. It's kind of like college. If you go to school every day and show up to class, you're not studying for the exams, you're not reading the material. Obviously, when you take the quiz, you're probably going to fail or not get a good grade. That's the same thing with mental health and therapy. Like when you show up and put in the work, you're going to get out what you put in. So some people manage and some people overcome the stressors to learn how to um, prevent situations and identify triggers before it even happens. So it depends on the individual. See, see that's, that's good. I'm glad you said that because this is the deal. When you start listening to people in, in, in radio, on television, and they're talking about, you know, people go get mental health. If you got a problem and you got a mental health problem, go have it looked at. If you got a mental health problem, go get it checked out. If you got a mental health problem, go have it diagnosed. Mental health is not an individual problem a lot of times. Mental health is a community problem, not just sometimes an individual problem. Yes, there's an individual diagnosis, there's an individual treatment, but mental health to me is a community issue that needs to be looked at, not just one person's problem. For instance, right now, we've lost over 600,000 people in America due to the COVID virus. That means you're dealing with millions of families who have uh, situations in their family where they're grieving, they're dealing with mental health issues. I want to talk about the black community because that's where I'm from and that's what I know about. I know for a fact in the black community, people are grieving heavy because we lost a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we haven't been able to have any closure in, in, in dealing with the death uh, and grieving of our families based on the fact that we weren't there when they passed away due to the right. restrictions that they had for visitation. And two, we were just dealing probably with mental health issues all our lives, but not in a community mode. What I'm saying is this, mental health has to be looked at as a community issue. It has to be ha- it has to have some type of action plan to go into those communities and start to work and start to look at how we can help the community do a preventive action of mental health issues and also diagnose and treat those that are there. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And I want to touch bases on two things. You said the thing about COVID with people losing their loved ones. And you also talked about um, a community issue issue. So this is the thing with mental health, right? It's based on society, cultural and family norms and generational cycles, right? And so when I was in school, I love to tell this story because I always thought play therapy was like crazy. I'm like, how do you talk to like a two-year-old or a three-year-old and do therapy with them? But the thing is you observe them right and so play therapy is something when you observe a child and you put like strategically put different toys in a room and see which toy they they take to which toy they play with and so if you see a kid beating up a doll then you know they have witnessed some form of abuse or domestic violence if you see a kid like molesting a doll or touching a doll inappropriately you know they have been exposed to that so kids basically do what they learn and so behavior is 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 taught is learn. So we kind of do what we see. And so from a societal perspective, sometimes people have been taught to basically survive. And let you're talking about the African-American community. And I want to talk about the urban cities. And so when we're taught survival skills, mental health coping could be survival. And that means right. basically uh, flight before, you know, um, flight over fight or fight over flight, depending on what was taught to you. And so many times we look at those things as a negative thing, but that's what they know. They only know the flight or fight. They only know survival. And so that's how they deal with mental health. For example, you know, you have a lot of people, they think, you know, um, 
we don't talk about what's what's in the house. We keep it in the house. And so that's another form of learning how to cope. Is it good? Probably not necessarily depending on the person, but we have to talk about how these behaviors have been learned. And you talk about in the communities and no one is addressing it. to say we know we need to address these things and get help. And another thing I want to talk about, is you said, the COVID situation, um, a lot of people were not able to bury their loved ones and have memorial services and different things like that. So my suggestion to them is I'm going to just give the word COPE and use it like an acronym to say, you know, COPE, the C in COPE is coming together and remembering your loved ones. Because I see a lot of people, they do balloon releases, they do a lot of different mm. things, but they forget to incorporate, you know, the 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 part where you talk about the person, when you remember the person, when you, you know, talk about your experiences with the person, don't just release the balloons, but actually make it a celebration of their lives. You know, talk about the good times because that's one, that's the thing that's going to keep you going And the, Oh, open your mind to saying it's okay to hurt. It's okay to cry. You know, crying releases so much things in you. So be open to say, you know, I'm hurt right now and mourn the loss because a lot of times we suppress it. You know, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. And that only makes it worse. And then the P push yourself to live again. You know, many times when we lose someone, we stay stuck. Right. We don't want to get up. We, you know, it's like our life is over, but this person is left. And I always want to say this because every last one of us in this world is going to die one day. Right. But when our loved ones passed on, we have to keep living. We have to keep going. And then the E in cope is exercise your right to tell people you're okay. Many times we put on a smile and we lie and everything is fine. And it's not, it's okay to not be okay sometimes. No, I agree 100%. It's okay to say, look, I don't, don't ask me how I am. And then when I tell you, you don't want to talk about it. Right. You know, right. How you, you ask me, how you feeling today, Rob? Oh, man, I'm not feeling well, man. I just, I got some things on my mind. Well, let's talk about it. That is the most important thing. See, that's what I have in my family is that when I see someone in my family having an issue, I go to them and I say, look, how you, you all right? They say, yeah, I'm okay. So, well, no, you ain't all right. I could tell you not right. Let's talk about it. Talking about it brings it out and it makes you feel better. But now the way they want us to talk about it is an issue. I'll give you, for instance, me going to a therapist that is not of my culture, that is not of my color, that doesn't have ideas or cultural sensitivity is difficult for me to sit there and talk to that person about my problems. So when I, when I, when I, when I subject myself to not doing that, then people say, well, you're not trying to get help. I'm trying to get help, but I need to talk to somebody that understands me. Is that a, a positive entity in, in getting well? 100%, 100%. Okay, just like when you go to a job interview, right? The employer is interviewing you, but I think as a candidate at a job, you should be interviewing the employer. The same thing with the therapist. You know, is this the right fit for me? Does this person, do they get me? Do they understand me? Do they speak the same language? If I use a certain slang term or a certain word, are they going to even know what I'm talking about? And so you always want to interview the therapist before entering into treatment. So, you know, it's a good fit, like a relationship. Right. You're not going to date someone that, you know, you don't have commonalities with. It's the same thing with the therapist. You want to make sure that they understand you for your, your best treatment because it's your treatment. Right. I agree with that. I'll give you, for instance, also, when I was in medical school, we did uh, psychiatric rotations, mental health rotations throughout the city. And we went to one hospital called Maimonides Hospital in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And there's a, as a highly uh, Jewish uh, community. And for one week, they orientated us on how to deal with their problems, how to deal with 
talking to them, understanding their culture, understanding the whole process. The next rotation, I went to a hospital called Woodhall Hospital in the heart of Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, all black community. They didn't say a word about how to deal with black people. It was a big difference in the way that we present this. Black folks have to understand this. You are the one that are seeking out someone to help you. Therefore, you have the right to be able to ask those questions that make you feel comfortable. They're not doing you a goddamn favor. You're paying them for treatment. They're giving you the treatment that you need, but you need to be very careful on who and when you select these people. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and going back to what I was just saying to say, you know, to respond to what you're saying is like, you're giving up your most vulnerable secrets, you know, you're being vulnerable. You're talking about things that you probably have never spoken to anyone. And so when I was saying like how, when you date someone, you're opening up to that person, not that you're going to date your therapist or anything like that, because that would be completely unprofessional, but you're opening up in a way that you may have never opened up. And you want to make sure that's a person that you feel safe with. 100%. I mean, even now I tell people like, like for the young people, when you online, those people are not your friends. You know what I mean? These people are opening up with their personal uh, problems. They're crying online. I know they're looking for a way to, to release, but don't release the people that you can't trust because later on that comes back to seem to bite you. And that's why we have so many young people to me committing suicide because of things that they've let out. Like you said, their vulnerability and now it's coming back and it's haunting them and they're turning to suicide instead of turning to another person they can trust because they feel now they can't trust nobody. But this is the thing, right? And when you talk about social media, that, that's like, oh, it just drives me crazy because everybody does something, right? And then when you talk to them, you realize they really don't do what they say they do. Right. And so, you know, you're basically talking to people that's giving you advice. I have people all the time, well, a married couple told me, and I said, I could see somebody that's married for 30 years. That doesn't mean they're in a healthy relationship, right? It may just be as toxic. So even when you're getting advice from people, you got to always ask, who am I getting advice from? That's key. Right. But but when you're in that moment, I think you just need to vent. But people need to understand who are you venting to. And you're right, because it could come back to bite you. Because is the information you're sharing with safe with the person you're sharing with? And are they giving you the appropriate coping skills or tools to basically help you move forward or get past what you're dealing with? Right. Now, everyone's saying run to the mental health uh, advisors, run to the mental health system to get mental health. There are a lot of people who financially can't afford it, a lot of people who don't have the insurance to cover it. What do you suggest that those people do? So the people like that, what I would suggest, to be honest with you, is always surrounding yourself with positive, healthy people. Um, Just being around the people that's giving you insight, you know, that may because let me tell you this. I was a therapist before I was a therapist, if that makes sense. Right. I just needed the degree to basically. Pass the state exam to basically be licensed according to society standards, right? right? But sometimes we have people in our lives that speak into us and speak to us in a way that no one else can. And that's a form of therapy, right? If they're healthy and they're giving the right advice, if they're healthy and they're assisting you in the right manner, you know, that's one way. Another way is basically self reflecting Many times we have stressors and we want to point the finger at everybody but us. And therapy, I don't even let a person keep talking about another person. You know why? Because that person is not in the room. And so I have to help you help yourself. So when people come to me and tell me their problems, I say, for every problem, give me three solutions. 
Right. If you're depressed, what can you do to make yourself not depressed? What can you do to make yourself happy? What things or activities can you engage in to take you out of that state of mind? And see, stressors to every stressor, there is a solution. We may not believe it, but it is because basically our problems is based on mindset and how we view them. Right. We either going to let it overtake us or we're going to overtake it. And so basically just identifying three problems to every solution. One of the biggest things I know that is great is having like a safe space. I always say my house is my safe haven. When I walk out into the world, I expect chaos. The world is crazy. But when I go home in my my house, I expect a safe haven. And, you know, many people, they probably don't have their own home. They may have their own room but they may not have their own room. Use the bathroom, use your car, use whatever space you can create to make it just your time about you to create a special time for you to have that peace and tranquility. If you can't afford therapy, you know, take walks, you know, right. talk to positive people, put up, you know, one things that get one thing that gets me in the mood is some upbeat music. It'll just change my whole trajectory of my day. Just putting on things like that. So there's many of things you could do that doesn't really take money to do it. Right. We we have a thing in my martial arts organization called Pray, Train, Study, PTS. Love pray, it. Pray to whoever you believe the most high is, right? Pray, train, physically train your body because your body, spirit, and mind are one. There's no separation between the two. So if you exercise, you're going to feel better. Your self-esteem is going to be yes. better. You're going to burn that energy. And then the last is S, which is study. Study to, to help yourself. Study on ways that you can make yourself a better person, feel better, and study to how to handle your environment around you. That is vital. And I think that they can do that also, instead of having sometime having medical intervention when you don't have the money or your insurance doesn't cover it, there's things that you can definitely do that are innate to you. Absolutely. Now, now there's another issue that I think that I want to talk to you about. And it's really mm-hmm. on what people think therapy is. You know, if you look at television, you see a old white man there in, in his office. <laughs> he's got a he's sitting in a big old chair. He's got a, a, a he's got a, a pipe in his mouth and you lay on the couch and you tell him your problem. A lot of people think that that's what it's about. Give me an idea of what real therapy is and what they should expect when they come to therapy. Therapy is just having an assistant, someone that is assisting you to identify your problems and solve them. You know, it's basically helping you with coping strategies to identify triggers. Like you might have a person that they're angry all the time, but they don't even know why they're angry. I'm a therapist that I get to the root of the problem, you know, because I feel like if you put a Band-Aid on something. OK, for example, so you're you you are into the medical arena. Right. And so if a person comes in and say they have cancer, you don't treat them. You have to first find where the cancer's at. What caused the cancer? How do we get to the, the place of the person has cancer? Right. That's, That's the same thing with therapy. It's like when you come to therapy, let's get to the root cause of the issue so then we can pull the root out to make sure the roots don't grow again. And so if you're having issues, like let's say someone is having um, anger issues, right? Okay, so where did that anger come from? Let's go back to the childhood to figure out when did you start feeling angry? Because when we get to the root, then we know the cause of it. Then we know how to identify it. And when you know how to identify it, you see the triggers when it comes and you're able to prevent it from happening. So I'm all about going to the root cause of things to prevent it from ever happening again. And if it does occur, we already know. We know what it is. We know how to identify it. So we know how to overcome it. That's real therapy. 
that's the, that's real therapy. And that's the same thing you do with medicine. When someone comes into me and they say, look, I got a stomach ache. The first thing I say to them, what makes you feel better? What makes you feel better? Well, I feel better when I lay in this position or that position or when I'm when I'm in the fetal position. Then I can recognize right away and try to diagnose it without even touching them. I can almost diagnose what's going on with them. But you're absolutely right. But I think that we have to stop just telling people to go get therapy. We have to tell people to start to study therapy, understand what you're doing, understand what to expect when you walk through that door, understand, again, like you said, you're very vulnerable. So you want to make sure that you have somebody culturally comfortable in front of you that understands you and understand that you have to put in the work. You can't just come there and, and, and think that I'm going to spend 30 minutes with you talking with you and you go home and bullshit and come back with the same problem. And I asked you, <laughs> did you do your homework? And you goddamn it, tell me you didn't do it. We'll, we'll right. never get we'll never get past the issue, you know, on that. Right. Now, I'm glad I'm laughing because it's funny, but I'm so glad you said that, Dr. Evans. I'm so glad because people will really get mad and think that you have this magic wand that you could just fix their problems. And with everything, there's work. I like the scripture, faith without works is dead because you can pray all day long. That's just one tool that God is giving you, right? right. But correct. there's other tools in the tool belt that he has given you. If you want to see results, you have to put in the work. I can't eat cake every day and then think I'm not going <laughs> to gain weight and then want right. to lose weight. I got to go exercise. So right. with anything, if you want to see a change, you have to put in the work. You have to put in the work. I agree 100 percent. Are you seeing now uh, since this COVID virus came in, are you seeing now where families are being divided or there's a lot of stressors in the family, like men not having jobs and dealing with their wives or their wives dealing with their husbands? Are you seeing more now of that type of issues in, in, your, in your practice? Yes. And I want to say this. COVID, in my opinion, in my professional opinion, just brought out situations and relationships and households that were already there. And I'm going to tell you why. Okay. When you, as a married couple, as a family, when your kids is going to school every day, you're going to work, you're really interact. You're probably spending more time at work than you are with your families. Right. And so when you have to be in an isolated place, you can't leave. Then you're forced, forced to deal with your issues. You're forced to identify the things that you run away from the work or you bury yourself in work or you leave. You can't leave now. We're, it's a pandemic. And so I've seen a lot of marital issues because people were forced in the house and a lot of things were coming up. To me, those were things that were already there. You just had to look in the mirror and face them. So that's what COVID has brought out, allowing people to see the issues within their household. Right. Is there any advice you can give couples who are stressing right now? Because I know a few already in my martial arts organizations who hit me up and uh, they sometimes I have to intercede in their in their arguments or their disagreements. Was there any advice you can give them to help them get through this? Communication is always key. One thing I see with many people is they don't know how to communicate, even though they know they they think they do, because. When, when couples usually argue is because someone wants to be right and understanding that you can agree to disagree. You are two different people. You're not always going to think the same. Right. And it's like the team. You got a person on a basketball team that's a shooter. You got a point guard. You got a whatever, whoever. I don't know all the positions, but everybody plays their part. You have someone that assists that. You know, right. give the persons the, the person the ball. That's correct. Everybody plays an integral piece of the team. And so understanding that 
you're not always going to play the certain position, but that's where compromise comes in. You're right. not always going to agree. That's okay. You're individual. You're not supposed to always agree and understand to communicate and not trying to win the argument in hearing. One of the things that we don't do in relationships, we want to be heard, but we're not willing to listen. You know, I tell people mm. all the time, and I love this analogy because we can all be standing outside right now and see a car accident. And we're, we all, we could be five people and all five of us may give five different interpretations of what happened. It's not that the interpretation is a lie. It's just that that was our experience. That was from our vantage point. That was our perception. And so many times we only want to see things from our perception instead of stepping back and saying, let me understand where you're coming from. Right. Let me see what you mean. I don't have to agree with it, but I should be understanding. And that's a lot of times in marriage relationships is the issue is that people are not effectively communicating because I believe this too. I don't believe you always have to argue. You know, right. uh, disagreements don't have to be, you know, loud, obnoxious and out of hand. We can agree to disagree. Uh, we can agree to disagree and respect each other in the process. Right. That's the thing we have to learn in a marriage is being respectful to one another and understanding you don't have to agree with what I'm saying. And it's OK. Right. And understand that there are stresses there that we're going to have to deal with. We can't run away from stressors. When a stressor is there, I like to deal with it. You know what I mean? I don't like to run away and try to hide from it. So Absolutely. If, right. If there's an issue that's there, let's face the issue. Let's try to figure it out and let's try to move on. Once you can do that, I think that you can have a, a great relationship. But I, it comes back also to me when I look at this whole picture is that the government itself has not done what they're supposed to do to help these families. They have not put the money into mental health. They have not come up with the, the community activists or put money in the grassroots organizations. But, but one organization that always steps up is the church. The church has stepped up in these affairs for the longest, since I can remember and hundreds of years before I can remember. Yes. The responsibility of the church is to help you, but they've gone far beyond the call and they need to be funded to have psychotherapy within their organizations to work within that community. How do you feel about that? I agree with you. The sad thing about mental health is a money grab, right? right? So I see a lot of organizations being able to get the funding, but they're not putting it to use in an effective way. And so with the churches, I see different churches where they have programs or like they're starting to bring in therapy and different things like that. And I commend them for that. But I agree with you. There does need to be more funding for. See, this is a thing about the United States. We live in a capitalist country. Right. And sometimes the bids and, you know, the funding does not always go to maybe the people that should have it is based on basically a popular a popularity in a capitalist contest. And so everybody's not getting the funding, even though these these grassroots organizations sometimes are doing it for free. The church are doing it for free. Right. And I agree with you. Let's give them the funding. Right. Because the people are already there. They right. know the people. Right. So why don't we meet the people, meet their need where they are, right where they're at, right where they're at. And, and not only that, but they know how to work money. So they know how to take a dollar and make it into a hundred by stretching it that far. They could take a dollar and stretch it that far because they don't have money and they've been able to interject into our communities. We're talking about the churches, the mosques. We're talking about everybody. They've been able to inject into right. those communities with, with no funding. This is what I think we should do. I think that you that they need to have a community czar, someone who's who looks over and oversees and makes sure funding comes to that community. They need to have the stakeholders in that community, including the churches, the grassroots organizations, mental health, 
and also hospitals in that area come together with the police departments and come up and start to realize that mental health is a community project and is festering in these communities. And if we don't do something to prevent it, which is preventive medicine, which is part of mental health, if we don't do something to prevent it, we're going to have problems later on. Because once once this COVID gets off the front pages, they're going to forget all about us again. We have no time. They're on us. So we need to move now. Are you in agreement with that? I'm in agreement, but I want to play devil's advocate if I can, Dr. Evans. I just want to play devil's advocate really quick because we also need to start holding the people in our communities accountable that are in position and they pimp our community by filling up their pockets and not doing the right thing. Because I see that a lot as well. 100%. 100%. That's why you hear me say on my other podcast, and if you know what I say, I always say that you got to hold the legislators, first of all, accountable. See, but when once we, what we have to do, what we have to realize is that we have that control. That means we have that power. All we have to do is get it together and not be cowardly, face those legislators and let them know, listen, man, either you do what we ask you to do, which is in the betterment of the community, or we're going to get your ass out of here. There's no, there's no question about it. And we tell the healthcare system within that community that you have a responsibility to, to service this community. Your outreach is part of your mission. And if you don't have the mission to go in here and start to bring in mental health facilities, if you don't go in here and start to realize that we are in a bad situation right now, I call this the pandemic to mental health pandemic. We need people in those communities right now. Grassroots people, we need funding. I need doctors without borders in those damn communities. Because if we don't yes. go in now, while this all these problems are going, we're going to wipe each other out. And the mental health, like you said, because I read something that you wrote, that, that the mental health becomes a family issue and a generational issue. And that's what we don't want. Oh, yes. The, the generation, I like to call them the generational cycles. It's just a repetitive routine of what we've seen before us. Right. And if a person doesn't have hope or they don't see any way out, they're going to repeat what was done before them, right. which puts us in a worse position. So community, community, like having the mental health are, you know, what am I trying to say? Let me slow down because I'm just so excited and hyped up. Oh, listen, having- you got, you bringing the heat, sister. You bring, <laughs> listen, you are talking what you are talking in reality. That's why you like, hold on. Oh, I got, I got, God, listen, I- you know what you're saying? I got a lot of shit to say, but we know we don't have the time, <laughs> but I got a lot of shit to tell you. And that's why I'm glad that you're on, but go ahead. Take your time. <laughs> So bringing it to the community and understanding, you know, like um, now that there are school shootings, now all of a sudden it's a mental health crisis. Right. But when people were killing each other in the community, they were just thugs. They were just crime. They were just bad people. Right. Yeah. And instead of looking at it as a mental health issue, looking at it as a generational cycle, you know, those are the things we need to identify. Why does this keep happening? And let's help them identify the trigger or the root cause so we could prevent it from happening. Not just labeling them as thugs, not just saying they're criminals, but understanding the reason and fixing. Okay, stop for one second. This is the first time I've been in medicine since 98 that I heard anybody talk about a generational cycle of mental health issues in a community. I'm telling you, I spoke to a lot of people. It's the first time I ever heard that when you said it. And I agree with it 100% because we don't look at it like that. The community doesn't look at it like that. We look at this as a regular process. You don't know good medicine until you've been to, some, to a hospital that services good medicine. So you think this is the way it is. You don't, know what a real, you don't know what a real car is until you buy a real car. 
Then you say, God damn, this is a nice car. The thing rides different than that old station wagon I got. So we need to absolutely educate these people to let them know that, yes, this is the problem. And we need to start to, to look at it. We need to start put the funding in there. And we need to start diagnosis and treating generational. Because yes. if we don't stop it generational, yes. it's going to go on forever. And we'll never get out this crisis. It's just going to go from the next generation to the next generation. And I don't know how people cannot equate mental health with, you know, generational cycles. Think of it like this. And I just want to touch bases on slavery really right. quick. Right. So with slavery, you know, African-Americans endured a lot. And right. so you got to think like this. I have a grandfather, right? That was in, you know, the civil rights movement in that era and all type of stuff. And so to this day, when he talks to us about his childhood, he stops and prevents himself from tearing up as yes. a grown 80 year old something man. Yes. So you got to think this was my father's father. Right. So you don't think what that man went through his cycles and his experience transitioned to his son. Now yes. I'm his daughter because we want to make it like, oh, this was a long time ago, but was it really? So if he has a certain mindset to deal with things a certain way, which is a mental health condition, because any action or behavior starts from the thought process, it's your mental state. Right. You don't think that had some type of effect on me. That's not generational. That's not a cycle. hundred percent. Violence is a cycle. That's why America is America, because they are violent. See, America loves violence, especially white America. They love violence because they, they call that freedom. You see what I'm saying? We don't, we sitting back and, and, and just looking at each other like, oh, we're supposed to accept this. We should not accept anything that's not beneficial to our community. And like you said, we got to hold these legislators to it. goddamn fire. You don't, you don't do what we want us to, we don't, you don't do what we want done. Then you got to get out of here because this is not the job for you. A lot of these legislators and a lot of these black legislators, man, listen, you catch them. And I've been in those meetings. You catch them in the meeting with these folks, these white folks, they act one way. And then they come back to the community, they act another way. If you're not bringing back the money, the funding, the understanding, the wherewithal, then we need to get your ass out of here. Simple as that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like how you said that about violence, because when you see it so much, like it, it's scary to me how desensitized society is now right. it becomes a part it becomes a norm and so when you only see violence it becomes normal you hear people all the time yeah i grew up where there were shootings and i don't even flinch when i hear a gunshot because they be, be they become accustomed to a way of living and so when you have violence on that scale how do we how do we fix that you know going back to calling them criminal and thugs so this is what i want people when they hear this is what i want them to think about i feel like i'm I call myself the thought provoker. Right. And I say things on purpose because I feel like you have to make people think. You know, is it a is it a is it a criminal or are they dealing with mental health issues? Right. I think I think they're dealing with mental health issues that cause them to be a criminal. That's what I think. I think Absolutely. that I think that the desensitization of the community causes me to be that person. So, uh, for instance, let's say I have good mental health, but I live in the community. I, I grew up in the ghetto of New York, South Jamaica, Queens, murder capital. Me as a kid, I could come out and start playing with toys and riding bicycles. Then I see a murder. Then I see a robbery. Then I see somebody get kicked, the cut, their guts cut out. Then I see a car accident. Then I see domestic violence. What the hell? That's going to affect me. Now, I got two Absolutely. options. Absolutely. I could try to move towards a, a position of safety and don't come out my house. 
or I can move towards the position of I'm coming out my house and I'm going to start busting ass too. I'm going to become violent. And that is what makes you into that criminality. It has a definite effect and it has a process that drives you towards that. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I've been a police officer for New York City Police Department, worked in the top uh, uh, crime communities. I've been a professional basketball player and I'm a, a medical physician. I've seen it all. I'm telling you, I've seen it all. And it comes back to mental health. If your mental health of the community is not there, if it's not addressed as a community, forget the individual. I'm not saying that you as individual, we don't care about, but we have to look at it as a festering problem within the community and get people in there, come up with an action plan with people who really want to know how to handle this, who understand it. Like you, you would be a great person for us to come up with an action plan, come up with the funding, go into these communities and start looking at how we can solve their problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. It has to be something done. It has yeah. to be something done. The question is, when is it going to happen? Well, this is what I That's said. In my, <laughs> no, I agree with that. This is what I said in my intro. How long, America, are you going to wait for us to deal with these problems? How long is the healthcare system going to stand around and watch us have these problems? Because if you don't help us solve these problems, I guarantee you it's going to bite you in your ass later on. There's no if, buts, and maybes about it. I guarantee it. Because look at it like this. When the epidemic came with substance abuse in the Midwest, they addressed it. When school shootings happened, started happening, they addressed it. But violence and African-American communities have been happening and has never been addressed in a mental health way. No, not only that, but violence in African-American communities have been provoked. The system has provoked that violence. The police department is going in there treating them like they're some goddamn animals instead of treating them like people, knowing that their job should be more of a government job coming in to help the people, not to shoot the damn people. Your job as a police officer is to give service, not to kill not to beat them, not to put them down. That's why they were talking about defunding the police because people say, oh my God, we want to have cops. Are you crazy? You're going to have cops. What they're saying is take that funding away from them and put it into social-based programs within the community because they seem to be answering all their calls are based on social issues. How many times do they get a call about a real violent issue? They don't really get those calls. What normally happens is they get a call about a psycho uh, a psychosocial issue, they show up, they escalate it, and now it becomes a violent issue. No, that's true. Many times when you see the shootings, it is escalated. And one of the things they need to start doing is deploying mental health professionals out with them into the community. I think the whole policing training practices need to be reversed or looked at. You know, pulling your gun first is not always the answer. And I understand there are good police officers. But when you have this much issues or this many issues, it, one bad person can make the whole department look bad. And, and I'm, that's I'm, something that we really have to address. And I agree. And I'm going I'm ab- to play devil advocates on this also. Listen, there's good cops and there's bad cops, whether they're black or white. I've seen them both. Right. I've seen, I've seen them all. I've seen, white Very cops, true. I've seen white cops run towards that goddamn fire to get somebody out. And I've seen black cops run away from the fire. I've seen black cops run towards the fire to get somebody out and white cops run away from the fire. This is the deal. When you start to see a pattern of police brutality within a precinct or in a police division, it has to be addressed. 
And most likely, there's a psycho issue or mental health issue with that cop. So they need to be reevaluated. <laughs> That's okay. good. That and was not, good. And they're not doing that. Let me tell you why. I was involved in a major shooting in New York where I was attacked and had to defend my life. And I got, thank God. And it was a racial issue. Thank God I came out of that. And I came out of it safely. And I came out of it legally. Not one time did anybody come to me in that department and ask me, did I need therapy? Not one time. Mm. Not one mm. time. So here I am in a major violent altercation. I'm talking about violent. I'm not talking about some shit you see on TV. I'm talking about real violence. I'm talking about so violent, so big, you think you're in a war camp at this time. I leave leave that that night, that next morning I leave. Nobody asked me a question. Nobody asked me, you need help? Wow. Or do we need to sit down and talk with you? No one. Not a debrief? Anything? The debrief was trying to lock my ass up. That's what they did. A black cop. They said, oh, you know what? You got to be wrong. Because, you know, it was a white person that, that died. So we're going to look at you in a different way. Oh, that was the debriefing. But as far as coming oh, to me wow. saying, coming to me saying to me, hey, listen, do you need help? None of them. The only ones that did were a brother that, that, that taught me martial arts. His name is Ken Brown and my family. That was it. They came to me and said, are you all right? And guess what? I was not all right. I was not all right. Because there's no way that I could walk away from that with that type of violence in my, uh, that I saw and participated in and go home and sleep like a baby. No possible way. Wow. Wow. So, wow. so I had to deal with those issues and f- solve them and put them into perspective, which I did, and keep moving on. Now, remember, this happens on this Monday. Let's say uh, a month later, I'm back at work. Wow. Right. So now what happens? See, I understood how to handle it because I had people around me who knew what to do with me, who knew me, who knew how to focus me back into what I had to do. So what if I, what if I didn't have that? And I go back to work and I deal with violence again and I deal with violence again and I see violence. One of the cases that I saw was young people being sexually molested and murdered. So now I see that I show up to that scene. I see this. I don't see it going on, but I see the after effects. Right. I need to have some therapy. Yeah. I need. To, I, yes. So, so a lot of these cops don't want to go in and say, you know what? I got a problem because they know they'll be stigmatized by those departments. Their weapons will be taken away from them and their privilege as police officers will definitely be taken away. Even oh, now. Really? Oh, really? Oh, hundred percent. Is that a rule? No, hell it's not. A, it's an unwritten rule. The rule is come and tell us what's going on. And then when you go in there, they say, whoa, shit, can't be here. You got to get them out of here. Now, let me give you, I'll give you an example. There needs to be amnesty in all these different governmental departments for people to come and talk about what's on their mind, especially during this pandemic. If right. I'm a candidate for a police officer's job or a government job or enforcement job where there is a psychological that's going to be taken. I need to have amnesty for a certain period when I talk to that psychologist or psychiatrist. I need to have amnesty that you don't hold this against me when I tell you that I had to go to a psychologist, I had to go to therapy because of this pandemic and I lost family members. Right. These jobs don't do that. So if I'm going to become a police officer and I walk through that door and you say, have you had any psychotherapy? And I go, yes. They say, really? Okay, we need to have those records. You need to open it up for us. You need to give us a waiver so we can get those records and bring them. We can look at them. Now, whatever I told my therapist is not confidential as far as that is concerned, because I waive my confidentiality. 
Wow. I didn't know that. Yes. So, so how do you even feel safe talking to your therapist, even if they send you to therapy? It's like mm-hmm. counterproductive. It's counterproductive. And even just a person going to get a job. If my nephew goes to get a job as a police officer and they catch him in the, before the academy and do the investigation and say to him, have you talked? Do you have a, have you seen anyone in therapy before? He's going to say, even though he has his best interest is to say, no, I have not because if you do, you're not getting that job. You're not getting that job. Therefore, I'm calling for the government of the United States of America and the cities and states to give amnesty at this period of time. Because there's so That's much that, backwards. it is, but there's so much that young people have to deal with that they need to be able to reach out, but they got to be careful because when you do reach out, remember this at this time, a lot of these jobs are going to turn you down based on the fact that you went to therapy and it is backwards. Yeah. Cause honestly, I think you should be given the job if you dealt with what you've been through and overcame it. Because what's scary to me is a person that's walking around in life with mental health issues, don't acknowledge it, don't understand it, and don't even think there is an issue with their mental health. That no, is that- what's scary. Not a person that's acknowledging, hey, I need help and I'm trying to overcome this or overcame this. No, no. Because not- you acknowledge something is there. Right. See, and that's another thing. That's where physicians also, even in the medical system, I think that they need to have opportunities to have psychotherapy because this is the deal. If I'm in a hospital and I'm seeing death, 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 Mm. I need to have some help. There's no way that you can go through that and it doesn't affect you. There's no possible way that I'm in a community and I'm seeing death all the time, gunshot wounds. I'm working in the ER. I see gunshot wounds, stab wounds, people kill themselves, murder, suicide, children, child abuse, sexual mm. abuse. And I'm never offered phys- uh, psychotherapy. That should be part of a standard of care. Yes. That should be part of their I protocols. Agree. If you want to get past racism in those hospitals, and if you want to get past those doctors and nurses not giving the, the, the proper services and the quality of services, you got to also go back to the root problem. Where's the root? You said it yourself. Where's the root problem? We can find that problem, and now we can work our way through that problem. I think that has to be looked at. You just gave me a whole lot of insight with these different pro- professions because I never knew that they didn't offer or, you know, suggest or recommend therapy because you're right to see that over it's almost like it becomes a part of you and you normalize it and when you begin to normalize something like that you lose a part of yourself and you it's like you you separate from reality and your compassion can leave your empathy could leave yes. so if you if you have no compassion and no empathy that's a stone cold person that's a scary person to me when you don't have any compassion or empathy and and, and doc listen that same stone cold person now is open for ideas of racism. You understand what I'm saying to you? They're open now. That means they could be influenced by others. That blacks ain't shit. Don't worry about treating them. Or Hispanics ain't nothing. I got to get out of this hospital and get with my own people. I don't care about this hospital. I don't care about the treatment here. That was That's what's opening them up. Anytime you have a CEO of a hospital during a pandemic, in New York City, in a main hospital, and he's in Miami trying to control what's going on in his hospital and not back in New York? Shit. Nobody cares about those doctors and those nurses. Nobody. All they are are workers. That's all they are. And that's why I know for a fact that racism can be 
somewhat evacuated out of those out of that system if they start to learn and teach those doctors that they can be open to suggestions without prosecution. Listen, that's that, that's a good argument, a yeah, very good argument. Yeah, you can't have the door open and welcome me, and, I, and you got a knife behind your back. Get ready to stab the hell out of me. Are you kidding me? You sitting there smiling. Hey, come on in, Rob. How you feeling? The whole time I'm gonna murder his ass. And that's what, exactly what they do. If I'm a young cadet mm-hmm. in the police department going in and I and I, and I talk about psychotherapy, I'm not going to get the job. If I am a police officer who is on the job and, and I get into a major shooting or violence and I, and I, and I need psychotherapy, I got to watch what I say. If I am in the hospital and I'm seeing all this death every day and people dying and people sick and there's no psychotherapy there, that means people don't care about me. Mm. They, they don't give a damn. So I'm dealing with all these issues and that's, guess what? Now I got to go home and deal with my own family. Tell me how to do that. You understand what I'm saying to you? Now I got to go home and deal with people in my family who may not understand why I'm, I'm alone sometime. Or they may not understand why I need to be by myself sometime. Or may not understand why I may be crying by myself sometime. Because I have seen things that you haven't. And now I have to get through those things sometimes by myself. Now, a lot of those doctors turn to alcohol. They turn to drugs. A lot of those police officers turn to alcohol and they turn to drugs. Mm. And they just continue that and continue that status. That's why I'm glad I am so close to the most high. Because let me tell you something. I learned yes. fast. I learned fast how to separate that stuff from my family. I separated by getting the hell out of there. That's number one. <laughs> That's number one. Yes. And, finding, yes. and finding other occupation that I can be part of my family. I don't want my kids growing up and not knowing who I am. And I damn sure need them to help me get to where I have to go. And a lot of people don't have that choice. But if you do, you need to really consider it. Man, that that was just very informative. I'm just, I'm just I don't even know what to say. I'm just in awe. Like I never knew this was happening in such a prestigious field, like profession. Yes, yes. And they, they don't want to talk about this. And see, that's why I am so, I don't, I don't consider myself dangerous, but they don't want to talk about that. And they hope that no one talks about that. Me, I'm going to tell you like it is. I'll tell you from day one to day zero to day 101. From zero to, to 101, I'm going to tell you the facts. And the facts are, if we're going to make these changes, we got to go inside those policies. We got to get great leadership. And that leadership is vital. See, if you got good leadership who's willing to stand with you and who's willing to make the changes, changes can come. But if you got bullshit leadership who is looking at whether or not they can advance themselves or their families, then forget it. You can forget it. There's going to be no changes. I have sat before CEOs of hospitals who had the power. They had black CEOs who had the power to make a move and scared to death, scared to death. <laughs> but, see, but even that, we, but, but even that it's like, when you say scared to death, the question is why? And what does that stem from? Because I'm assuming if they're that scared to do the right thing, they know there's a repercussion behind it. Oh, no question about it. There's a repercussion behind it. But what you have to understand is you got to stand up sometime. If you can't stand you do. up sometime, you do. If you don't have the, if you have the power, but you can't make the decision, there's ways around that. Give it to somebody else who can make the decision. I'm not telling you to step down from your position. I'm telling you to find an alternative way to make it happen. That's what I'm saying Absolutely. to you. So, so this Absolutely. is it. If I, if, I, if I run a hospital and I know that I need to expand services in this community and I can't do it. And I know that if I turn to the other folks who run the board, who are going to control this and I go to them, they're going to get rid of my ass. 
I got to go to the community and say, hey, y'all, you realize that this is your priority, that you have the right. All you got to do is come up here and raise some hell. And believe me, changes will be made. And then walk about my damn business. Right. Right. But see, some people are not willing to stand up and, and, and risk themselves for nah. the greater cause. I, I'll give you, for instance, uh, I, had, I was I was a young doctor in the hospital and uh and uh, the, doc, the doctor that was, that was training me, and this is why training is important. The doctor that was training me, he, we had a patient, an uh, HIV patient who was dying and treated her like shit. I mean, treated her bad. Mm. And, I, and I intervened and I said, man, why are you doing that? And he started talking all this talk. The next day we came into her room and there was a lady sitting next to her. And then uh, she, the doctor said, well, who is this? He said, well, that's my, that's my sister. She's an attorney. And we're going to sue <laughs> your ass. His attitude, he was tough in the room. Oh, do what you have to do. I'll get great service. When we left that room, the first thing he said, nobody touched the records. I got to get these records. He was shitting in his pants. And that's the day I realized you can put that front on in front of everybody. But on the back end, man, you can make those changes by putting pressure on them. And if you put pressure on them and you bring it to them the right way, they're going to make the change. And believe me, his old ass made the change. Believe me when I tell you. <laughs> when it came to his money, he decided I better change quick. All right. I'm not gonna have I'm to I'm pretty sure no he money. did. I'm pretty sure he did. But I, I love that because I all I'm, I'm a firm believer. Right. And people say this, but I really live by this. I really believe in treating everybody with the same respect because you never know who you're talking to. Never you know. Never know who you're talking to. And he underestimated, wow. he underestimated who this person was because we were in a public hospital where and then a person lived right close to the hospital. Matter of fact, the, the person's family donated money to have a wing in that hospital and he didn't even know it. And so he, he just know. saw the person and assumed and judged them based on what he thought was who they were instead of seeing them just as an individual. And that's I the bet problem. that was a good learning lesson for him. It is the problem. It, it is a problem because people are are biased. Um, and to me, again, that is well, we could, you know, go on and on and on. But I'm going to just say this about, you know, kids and people do commercials about it and they talk about it all the time. When the kid is born, they don't know the difference. That behavior is learned is taught, you right. know, to be racist or to see someone yes. in a different manner than you. It's something that is taught. And so getting away from that, I think we it's an uphill battle. Because I'm going to be honest, I'm going to play devil's advocate again. When you have people, you're always going to have a flawed and biased system because of that. Right, right. Especially if they control the system. Especially if they control the system. But what we have to do as black people is this. We got to do PTS. We got to pray. We got to train. And we got to study. And study. We got to study. PTS. And if we do that and take that into any aspect of your life, any ask, it, it, it just fits in anywhere of your life. And you do that, you will be a better person. If we do it as a community and we get together yes. and trust each other as a community, we can change our environment. We can change our destination. And we damn sure can change the future. And changing the future brings in finances for us, bring changes economically, and make our generation something that other generations can be proud of and say, that's where we started and look where we're at now. That's what we need to do. PTS. Pray. Train, train and study. study. I would put that in my pocket, in my toolbox. Put that in your PTS. toolbox and wear it. That's right. And when you come out, it. it's like a sword. It works every time. <laughs> Pray, trade, and study. I got to use right. that. I got to implement right. that. I love that. 
Well, Doc, listen, we're going to end this, but do me a favor. Give us some information on where people can contact you and where they can, you know, maybe you may become their therapist. Just give us some information on that and uh, where they can go get your, your information online, so forth and so on. They can go to my website, saniyamayo.com. I'm going to spell it S-A-N-I-Y-Y-A-H-M-A-Y-O.com. Excellent. Excellent. And it's a wonderful website. I was there. It's a wonderful website. Oh, thank and, you. And it's very thank informative. You. And again, you you listen, let me tell you something. I have a daughter who is, and she reminds me of you a lot, who's very eclectic like you are, who's out there going to get it. And a lot of women now, and I, you know, I interview a lot of women and, and I do that because they're, they're, they're not heard as much as they should be. They, their ideas are great ideas yes. and they need to be heard. And, and, and I am so happy to have you as a guest on this and you've helped us so much. And I want to, I want to have you again. I want to, I want to go deeper into uh, psychology and and the racism that you know formulated it, and we'll talk about that another time. But thank you so much, and I appreciate you. Thank sister. you. It's All been right. a pleasure. I'm honored. Thank you. Thank you, my dear. Bye bye. Bye.